You find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you in Luke 16. Should we pray as we come to God's word? Father God, speak to us this morning. Father, we pray that as we open your word, Father, you would expose our hearts. Father, that you would help us to repent of our ways, Father, and love the Lord Jesus more as we see these words that he spoke here. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have a junk drawer? Do you know what I mean by that? One of those places in your house uh, that you put things that you don't know where to put. For my mum, it was a whole cubby hole. Uh, we had just the things that she didn't quite know where to put. It's similar to Michael McIntyre's man drawer, but not necessarily so manly. Uh, it's just stuff that doesn't seem to fit uh, anywhere else. Uh, did you know we have one at the church hall just behind Sainsbury's? If you look inside it uh, tonight, if you come along, you'll find things like blue tack. Uh, and Allen keys, not entirely sure what for, some plastic flowers, some paper that doesn't seem to fit with any other paper that we've got, and some odd felt tips that I think they work, but they don't seem to fit with any set that we have. There's no obvious place for them, so we just put them there. Now, when we come to this passage this morning, we're just looking at the second part uh, this morning of of that passage that was read to us before, Um, it seems a bit like Luke's junk drawer. You get sort of three things that are put there that are seemingly unconnected. One thing about the Pharisees, one thing about the place of the law, and then one thing about divorce. It seems in one sense like a jumble sale of a passage. And when you look in things like commentaries and books that have been written on this, you find next to nothing on this as a section. You just sort of find odd comments on each individual part. But it is a whole And it fits there for a reason. This is not Luke's junk drawer that we're looking at this morning. Our big clue, as always, is context. These incidents that we're reading about, about the Pharisees and the law and divorce, they come between more famous stories that we'll have heard of, and in a famous section that we're probably quite familiar with. The stories it comes between are the parable of the dishonest manager, where the disciples are told to use wealth to make friends and further the kingdom, And what follows is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where a wealthy man dies and ends up in hell, but the man who begged at his gate ends up in heaven. You see, the larger section that we're looking at here seems to be to do with wealth and status. And within that, that's actually within a larger section, which is an attack on the Pharisees, who disliked the people that Jesus was hanging around with. That's what this whole section is refuting. So if you go back to Luke 15, verse 1, where this section starts... You'll see what Jesus is doing. Luke 15 verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Actually, this whole section is a reply to the Pharisees. So we read this alongside the parable of the lost coin, the lost son, and the lost sheep. So what he's doing here is exposing the Pharisees' unwillingness to see undesirables coming to the kingdom, the people that Jesus has been spending his time with. And this section here is an extension of that, attacking their self-righteous attitude, attacking their love of status and wealth, attacking their hypocrisy. But we must remember as we go through this attack on the Pharisees, that we're not to sort of sit there and look down on the Pharisees and go, oh yes, they're terrible. 
Actually, if we do that, we become like the Pharisees themselves, who looked around and just pointed the finger at other people and said, well, at least I'm better than them. Now, as we hear this passage this morning, we've got to examine our own hearts and see if there lies any trace of a Pharisee inside us. Now, each of us can only do that for ourselves this morning because so much of it has to do with motivations, to do with attitudes that you can't see from the outside. But we'll see so much of what's going on here is the difference between the Pharisees on the outside and the Pharisees on the inside. To do with how we present ourselves and what's actually going on inside us. So in our passage, we're presented with three veneers. Veneers are a sort of thin sheet of something that's put over the top to hide what's uh, underneath, to make it look like something that it's not, like a mask or a front. Well, here are the three veneers that Jesus takes on this morning. Firstly, the veneer of hypocrisy. Let me read to you again verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Luke, the author of Luke's Gospel, tells us right away what he thinks about the Pharisees, what the Pharisees are. They're lovers of money. Now think of that in light of the parable that Jesus has just told. Think of the things that Jesus has just said. You cannot serve God and money. Well, we've got a clue here as to what the Pharisees were serving, haven't we? And it's not God, whatever they might say. Now, as you'd expect, they don't like what Jesus is saying. So what do they do? Do they enter into a reasoned debate? Do they look at the scriptures with him and defend their position? No, they do what so many do when their conscience is pricked. They mock, they ridicule, they deride. And laughter can hurt, can't it? Not not just when you pull the muscle. Now, obviously, laughter can hurt then. Uh, But laughter can hurt when people mock you, can't it? Sometimes that can actually be the harshest response. You know, we can cope with anger in a way. We can cope with scorn. But laughter, that can hurt, can't it? But Jesus is having none of their derision. He's having none of their mockery. He sees them for what they are. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. He knows what they're doing. What they're seeking is the praise of men, not of God. They justify themselves before men. They proclaim themselves innocent in their words, in their respectable moral behaviour. But Jesus sends that facade tumbling down with what he says next, doesn't he? But God knows your hearts. You see, their veneer is hypocrisy. What they proclaim with their mouths does not match with what God sees in their hearts. Their respectable behaviour on the outside hides a sinful heart underneath. Think about some of the, the moral monsters of our time, people like Jimmy Savile. What was he known for before he was exposed? He was known for his fundraising, his charity marathons, his support of local hospitals. But all of it was a front for an evil heart, wasn't it? He sought the praise of men, and he got it. He was Sir Jimmy Savile OBE. It's reckoned that he raised £20 million for charity, but all to mask his despicable heart. 
And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They want to look good to people. They want the status. They want the kudos. They want to look good and moral. But underneath, something else is going on. You see the second half of that verse. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What looks good to man is not what looks good to God. In fact, it's an abomination. That comes from the Greek word to smell, to have a stench. It stinks. It's normally tied with idolatrous things. You see, to man, they look like trophies. But to God, they look like idols. And we can make an idol of our own image, can't we, that we put forward to other people. We can put how we look before God. We'd rather sink in sin rather than risk our reputation or our image by seeking help for the problems that we have underneath. We'd rather people think that we were moral than come to God and have our sin exposed. Friends, God sees our hearts too this morning. He already knows what we're like. And that should come to a comfort, as a comfort to us this morning. God sees you on your darkest day, and he loves you anyway. God is not surprised by our sinfulness, but he hates our hypocrisy. All of us sin, all of us without exception. Me, your pastor included. Sometimes I shock myself at how sinful I can be. I can be proud, I can be unbelieving, I can be covetous. I can even be those things you're not supposed to own up to. I can be selfish, I can be lustful, I can be lazy. We all struggle with these things. But if we hide away sin, then we make ourselves out to be something that we're not. We make ourselves Pharisees. We're all sinful, but that doesn't mean that we all need to be hypocrites. We own up to our sin. Now, don't worry, I'm not suggesting here Sunday morning confessionals where people come up the front and sort of declare sin in front of other people. It's been hard enough to say those few things in front of you guys. But we need to be real with one another. We need to be honest with one another as a group, don't we? To move in that direction, to talk to people. What's the most common lie that we as Brits tell? I'll tell you what I think it is. How are you? I'm okay. None of us are really, are we, if we're honest with ourselves. All of us have problems. All of us have challenges and struggles. Well, the Pharisees went out of their way to hide theirs. They put a veneer over the top of them. Are we acting like Pharisees as we do that? So the first veneer is the veneer of hypocrisy, making ourselves out to be things that we're not. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. The second veneer that Jesus exposes is the veneer of law-keeping. Have a look at verses 16 and 17. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to were famous for their religiosity. They tied not only their income, but also tiny things like herbs that they would get. Uh, they went walking, but only a certain distance on the Sabbath. Uh, they fasted regularly, more regularly than even the Bible required. They prayed in public on street corners. Uh, they gave to charity. But Jesus' point all the way through the Gospels is that they are not law keepers, 
that loophole is. Instead of looking for ways to keep the law, they're always looking for loopholes, ways around the law. They wanted to be seen keeping the law while actually doing whatever they wanted. They wanted to, be, uh, to keep the law for the status that it gave them as good, upstanding citizens. The very name that they had for themselves was the Pharisees, the shining lights. That's how they saw themselves, showing the way to the common man. And they thought that keeping the law was the way to be right with God. And that made it in their interest to make the law as easy as they possibly could. Now that might sound bizarre in light of all their convoluted practices that they have that I just explained. But if you think about it, those things that we talked about there, they don't engage the heart. They just engage their actions. There were things that they could do. They saw the law as a problem that they had to solve to get their own way. How can we do what we want while technically keeping the law? They saw the law a bit like a crossword puzzle. You know, okay, when you're doing a crossword puzzle, I don't know if you do them, I do them sometimes. You're not supposed to use a dictionary. I don't know if you know that or a thesaurus. But you could imagine the Pharisee's mind, couldn't you? Well, I'm not allowed to use a dictionary, but it didn't say that I couldn't get a friend to look up something in a dictionary. I mean, that would technically be cheating. They thought that the law was like that, that you could sort of get round it. It's even more tragic when you realise that actually it was never about the law anyway. It was never about the puzzle. Their hearts were far away from God. And they spent their time working out how to get round his laws rather than how to really please the lawgiver, God. Now, of course, they thought that Jesus and his disciples were the ones who weren't keeping the law. They thought they didn't keep the law because they wouldn't play their games with the law. You see, the Pharisees made the law very specific. You could do this, you can't do that. And the more specific it is, the more easy it is to get round, because you can find ways round specific things. So when Jesus uh, disciples picked ears of corn on the Sabbath, the Pharisees jumped on them as lawbreakers. But the law never split it down in that way. It never made it so specific. They classified it as work because that's what their own rules said. So they actually view Jesus and his disciples as the lawbreakers. So what Jesus says here about the law becomes incredibly relevant when we think about the Pharisees. So what does Jesus tell us about the law? Well, two things. The first thing he tells us is that the Messiah's coming means the end of the era of the law and the prophets. The Messiah's coming means the end of the era for the law and the prophets. We know this, don't we? That's why we have a page between Malachi and Matthew that says New Testament, New Covenant is what it really means. The Old Covenant was until John, Jesus says, with its food laws and purity laws and national laws. Now it's not the law that's preached, but the gospel that's preached. The gospel of the kingdom, God's new society where he rules. And people, if you look, are coming in. Now, the commentaries all debate whether people are pushing their way in, which is one way you can read that, that phrase in Greek, or whether they're being urged to enter in. Uh, the word can mean either. And that's really what the commentaries all focus on this. But I think really they're focusing on the wrong word. The word that would have really struck the Pharisees in that sentence, uh, I'll read it to us again. Um, 
The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. The word that would have struck the Pharisees there is everyone. Everyone is being urged to enter. Everybody is forcing their way in. The Pharisees had a big problem with that idea of everyone, because they wanted to be the only ones. They wanted to be the shining lights. See, what Jesus is saying is that the dividing wall of the law has come down with the arrival of the gospel, and now everyone's invited. Can you see why that would be a problem to the Pharisees? What would they be thinking hearing this? Now that all their law-keeping thing that they thought was so special, well, Jesus is saying, no, everyone, all who will can enter in. So we know uh, Jesus, uh, what would their response be? Well, we know, don't we? We're told it a little bit in the previous chapter in Luke 15, 28 to 30, with the attitude of the old son. What happens when people who are sinners are welcomed in? Well, this is what we read. But the older son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes who devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the fattened calf for him do you see the older son is so annoyed that his younger brother gets to go in that he refuses to enter himself the Pharisees did not want an open door to the kingdom they wanted to be in their own little club where everybody was like them and they could congratulate each other on how righteous they were Is there a danger that a church can turn into that? I imagine that's actually how many people on the outside, uh, in Otley and Ilkley, view what happens inside. Even though they never come, they sort of think it's a little club where we all pat each other on the back. And woe betide anyone who doesn't conform to our standards. Well, the early church, what was that full of? The early church was full of former tax collectors and sinners. And they shunned the self-righteous hypocrites. The 21st century church, it could be argued, is full of self-righteous hypocrites who shun the tax collectors and the sinners. How did we end up so self-righteous? How did we end up so respectable? Could it be that for many of us we're in danger of turning into Pharisees who preach the law and not the gospel? Either with our words or our own veneer of law-keeping. The Old Testament is over, says Jesus, and now all may enter in because of Jesus' death on the cross. But the second point is, that doesn't mean that the laws are relaxed. Look at verse 17 again. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now this was important for the Pharisees to hear, especially for their understanding about Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples weren't being lax about the law. For their, um, they also needed to understand this for their own view of what was happening. Jesus isn't saying that what he's bringing is a new sort of Pharisee light way into the kingdom. So, you know, same mindset. It's all about law keeping, but now it's just a bit easier. Same exam, just easier questions. But Jesus is not saying that God has lowered the bar. That's not what he's saying. As if the Old Testament was too hard, so here's a less demanding way. 
Jesus is saying God has not lowered the bar at all. Not one dot, one drop, one part of the law will come out. What is the law supposed to do, though? Well, we're told a bit about the law in the parable that follows, which gives us a bit of a clue. If you look down to verses 27 to 31 in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we read a bit about Moses and the prophets. I'll read them to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest also they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you notice in there, it tells you what Moses and the prophets are supposed to do, what the law and the prophets are supposed to be for. They're to bring them to repentance. That's why you want someone to be raised from the dead, to go and show them to repent. But the answer is that the law is sufficient to do that. Moses and the prophets are sufficient to do that. So that's partly how the law should function, to lead us to repentance. We should look at the high bar and then repent in sackcloth and ashes. But instead, these Pharisees, they're making out that they're keeping it. They're making out that they're up at that high bar. But the law does not pass away or literally fall. It remains to show us the incredibly high standards of God. It's supposed to cause us to be humble as we look at the law. To cause us to be thankful for Jesus' rescue. Giving us something that we could never earn ourselves. And also there to help us to know how we might please God with lives lived in thankfulness to him. But the Pharisees' interpretation of the law and its requirements made them proud, not humble. They thought that they could do it, so they thought that they were amazing. But their law-keeping was just a veneer. What they really wanted were loopholes, so they could take pride in their technical law-keeping. Do we play the same games with God's word, so that we're technically keeping it? If so, then we're acting like Pharisees. We have the veneer of law-keeping. We need to keep with the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. The bar has not been lowered, but Jesus has offered us a way in. And then finally, the last veneer that they're putting up is the veneer of monogamy. Have a look at verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This last section can seem a little bit disconnected in a section that's seemingly about wealth. But when you understand that this is about putting up a front, it begins to make sense. See, by Jesus' day, there were two opposing views on divorce. One famous rabbi, Shammai, had taught that divorce was only permissible in the case of adultery. Jesus teaches uh, this exception in Matthew's Gospel, but Shammai's view was not very popular in Jesus' day. Another famous rabbi, Hillel, taught that a man could divorce his wife if she displeased him in any way whatsoever. So if she made a bad meal, he could divorce her. If she wasn't looking nice enough, he could divorce her. And this view was the most popular in Jesus' day. This is what the Pharisees generally thought. You see, the Pharisees wanted to be seen upholding the law, 
But it was they who had lowered the bar by making divorce a matter of the whim of the husband. The result, it would seem, for the Pharisees was something that you might term serial monogamy. Fidelity in the moment, but always on the lookout for the next one. We see it today, don't we, with celebrities. Think back to an era gone by. Jar Jar Gabor was married nine times. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor had seven husbands, though she married uh, eight times because she married Richard Burton twice. And it's quite normal for Hollywood stars to have uh, married two or three people uh, by the time that they become famous. And if you think about people just around us, uh, I remember when I was at university, my, my friend... My friends would make a big deal of their fidelity. You know, I, I never cheated on anybody. I've had 20 partners, but I've never cheated on any one of them. As though just moving from one to the other was okay. So even without marriage being very popular in our society, we have this serial monogamy model. It's not fidelity to one person, if you like. It's fidelity to one person at a time. And that's what seems to be happening with the Pharisees. Women were being passed around or traded like cars or cattle. Men would marry only for a few years later to trade them in for a younger model. But the original law in Deuteronomy seems to take steps against this trading of women. So on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that was the word that was disputed, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and be- becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the Lord, the land, the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So one of the things that this meant was there was a due procedure that men had to follow in divorcing their wives. It was important because actually if you divorce someone that left them pretty much destitute. But it also meant they couldn't temporarily divorce their wives. Uh, it, They couldn't sort of pass them to a friend and then take them back a few days later, if you like. Now, the Pharisees had got round this in a way. They just kept trading. They just kept going, one woman after the next. Never the same woman twice, but just keeping going with serial monogamy. Now, given the other scriptures that we read in the New Testament, I don't think that this is an outright ban on divorcees remarrying. I don't think that's what this is saying. Um, It's not saying... Married couples remain married in the God's sight even when they are divorced. That would make a nonsense of the Deuteronomy passage where they are not allowed to take them back. What it is condemning is this serial monogamy, more prevalent now than it has been for hundreds of years, if you exclude Henry VIII, who seems to do it quite a lot. But marriage is supposed to be a lifelong bond between a husband and his wife, till death do us part, not until we get divorced do us part. Now, marriages do fall apart, and sometimes divorce is appropriate. But if we start treating marriage like a stopgap until someone else comes along, then we devalue it. When we marry, we should at least expect it to be a lifetime union, not just a lunchtime union. 
Marriage is a respectable institution given by God to mankind as a gift, given as a good gift to be enjoyed. But it was being made a mockery of by how the Pharisees were treating it. They were using the respectability of marriage as a veneer. They were adulterers at heart, but they just wanted to go through the motions of getting married first before moving on to somebody else. Can we be adulterers at heart? but hide it in a veneer of respectability? Married, but with a wandering eye? Single, but with an indecent fantasy life? Just going out, but privately doing things that only married couples should do. Well, God sees our hearts. God sees what we do in private. He cares about our attitudes, not just our actions. What is our attitude like in this area? If we're hiding under a veneer of outward purity, when our hearts are something quite different, then we're acting like Pharisees. So is there any hope? Well, if we sat here this morning and thought, that's me. One thing on the outside, another on the inside. If it feels like this morning your life is a junk drawer, you know, it looks good when it's closed, but when you open it up, you see the horror inside. Is there anything we can do? Well, like the law and the prophets, this passage here this morning is to lead us to repentance. A change in attitude inside that leads to a change in action. A change that happens first inside of us and then impacts what we do. Turning from our sinful rejection of God and turning towards him for mercy. Well, if you've never done that before, then you need to repent To turn and put your trust in God. In what Jesus did on the cross to save you. He bore our sins on the cross. He bore all the bad things inside us when he died on the cross. Taking the penalty that we should have received so that we can enjoy that kingdom relationship that he gives us. But if you're a believer here this morning, you still need to repent. Never tire of Luther's first thesis that he nailed on the door. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Repentance isn't a one-time thing, it's a lifetime thing. 